This weekend is entitled, the conference, um, Fruitful Work. One of the first commands that God gave to his people, to humanity, is to be fruitful. And so this weekend, we're going to talk about what that means, to be fruitful. And of course, part of what that means is we're to work. And uh, my message tonight is called The Morality of Work. Now, you know that this weekend marks a very important anniversary in our country. This weekend, we will mark the 15th anniversary of 9-11. And you'll hear a lot about that on the news as, as well we should. You might not hear as much about another anniversary that is next year. October 31st, 2017, the world will celebrate and remember the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 thesis on the church house door in Wittenberg, Germany. That date is generally accepted as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. Now, whatever your view of Reformation theology, any honest student of history has to admit that culture was forever changed through the Reformation. And one of the ways that it was changed, and it has changed societies and continues to change societies and culture, is our understanding of work. There is a concept in our culture called the Protestant work ethic. Have you ever heard of that? The Protestant work ethic was a byproduct of the Reformation, because as the Reformation led to a high view of Scripture, sola scriptura, even work was seen in Scripture as an act unto God, an act of worship. And so the people began to believe that they should do their work with excellence, and they should do it with diligence, because they're doing it as a stewardship as unto the Lord. So hard work and physical conservatism became associated with areas of the world where the Reformation was most impactful, places like Western Europe. And then many of those Western Europeans became immigrants over to the New World, to the United States, and they brought their Protestant work ethic with them. And the group in this country that's most associated with the Protestant work ethic were the, the Puritans. And sometimes the Protestant work ethic is interchanged with the phrase the Puritan worth ethic. Now, if someone calls you a Puritan or refers to your actions as puritanical, they're not complimenting you. Okay? In our culture, to be a Puritan, that's a pejorative term. They're, they're putting you down. And it shouldn't be because the Puritans produced some of the great preachers and theologians um, that have ever walked the planet, one of whom was Jonathan Edwards, a man that I greatly admire as a preacher and a man. So the question before us tonight is, were they right? That is, the Puritans, the, the, the Protestants who had this worth ethic. Is there virtue and morality in work, particularly hard work? And we're going to present this weekend the notion that our Protestant ancestors were right and that we are on solid biblical ground today with uh, an understanding of work. And I, I want to frame my arguments tonight with four points that are in our workbook, I believe. The origin of work, the focus of work, the command to work, and finally the, the rewards of work. Now, the, re, the, the origin of work was in God's garden, wasn't it? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says, Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Now, that's an important verse in the Bible because it, first of all, dispels the false teaching that work is not virtuous because it was God's idea. And God would not do anything that was not virtuous or moral. Or even the notion that work is part of God's divine punishment. God gave Adam and Eve responsibility and work to do long before sin entered the world. First of all, it's he's to cultivate and, and to keep it. Now, not in the sense that uh, 
If you grew up on a farm, you till the ground and you fight the weeds and the varmints, and hopefully you'll have something at the end because sin had not yet entered the world. Really, the best translation of that word in the Hebrew probably is to serve and to keep the garden. Now, let me ask you a question. Did God need Adam's expertise in horticulture? Of course not. He created the universe by himself in six days, and the theologians tell us he did that in an ex, in an ex nihilo fashion, that is out of nothing. He didn't have blueprints and plants, he didn't have building materials. He spoke the word, fiat creation, from the spoken word and, and it was good, he said. Now Shane mentioned that uh, he wants a boy and uh, has three daughters. Well, keep working at it. I have three daughters, but five years ago the Lord blessed us with a boy a son, and he's sitting right over there. And uh, his dad is well pleased with him most of the time. <laughs> but he loves tools. He loves to hammer. He loves to fix things, take things apart. His favorite toy is a tape measure. And so anytime there's uh, honeydew to do around the house, I ask him to help me. But it's not because I can't do it without him. Not necessarily because he has an expertise. It's because I get joy from seeing him work and it gives him dignity and in a similar fashion i believe that's why the lord gives us task it brings him joy to see us work and it gives us dignity so the question is what exactly did adam do as he served and he kept the garden well the bible doesn't tell us much we know that one of his tasks was to name all the animals and have dominion over the garden we know this it was not wearisome or burdensome work it certainly was a joy because it was the perfect environment that God had created. It was not toilsome. We do know that work did become toilsome and a burden when sin entered the world. Genesis 3 says this, Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it will grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. When I was a young man uh, living in northeast Arkansas, chopping cotton, I knew this verse, and I blamed Adam (laughs) for those cultivars that made my life so difficult. Now, we live today with a lot of modern conveniences. Most of us do not make our living by the sweat of our brow, though some still do, and the Lord bless you if you do. But for most people in the world, even to this good day, the simple act of making a living, providing your family's daily bread is a very exceedingly difficult proposition. And so the origin of work is God's garden. The focus of work is God's glory. Colossians 2.33 says, whatever you do, speaking to Christians, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Now, surely you may say Paul is talking about religious activities. When you sing to the Lord, you ought to sing hardly. You should, but that's not all he's saying. When you preach, you ought to preach with enthusiasm. I agree with that. But he says, whatever you do, and I take that very literally. In fact, the context that Paul wrote those words, he was addressing the duties of slaves to their masters. And he was saying, slaves, when you work, you ought to work hard to glorify the Lord. Now, Paul never endorsed slavery as an institution. He simply acknowledged that some of the Christians in the first century church were slaves. And he tells them that they could glorify God through their work. 
Now, in our context today, we can relate this to an employer, an employee, supervisor, boss, and his underlings. If you have a job in the corporate world, you ought to work hard as a Christian, even, the Bible says, when no one is watching. That's called integrity. Even if your boss is a jerk. You should not steal either time or money or pens. You should view your work as a means to be a conduit of God's blessing. Here was the real game changer of the Protestant Reformation. That work could be the conduit through which God blessed humanity. Work also allows you an opportunity oftentimes to share your faith even as you're providing for your family and to help the less fortunate and to support the ministries and the mission of the local church. Now there's a warning about that. When you start looking at work from a biblical perspective, that view of work sometimes will expose some ethical dilemmas. What if your vocation, what if your job is to harm other people rather than to help them? My wife and I were at a Texas Rangers game last week and uh, there was um, a couple behind us and uh, they began to get louder and louder with every inning that passed and every time the beer man passed down the aisle. And he began to talk to the person to his left about their vocations. And he said, well, I'm a bartender and my job is to get people drunk. And I thought, the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, which is a way. So can a Christian be in a position where his job does not bring glory to God because at its essence, its intent is to harm people. And so when we start talking about work as a part of glorifying God, it really puts the microscope on every area of our life and causes us to have to think deeply about everything that we're doing in life. That's a good thing, the focus of work to glorify God. Now thirdly, there is the command to work. This is God's imperative. The origin of work was, was God's garden. The focus of work is God's glory. The command to work is God's imperative. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, for even when we were with you, Paul says, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not, what? Eat. Now that seems kind of harsh. The, the simple meaning is that if a person is of a sound mind and body, they must work for their provision. And speaking in a Christian context, laziness, Paul seems to indicate, is as much a matter of church discipline as sexual immorality and false doctrine. Now that is very serious. As I said, we're studying on Sunday morning here in, in Ephesians, and we just finished chapter 4. And Paul is talking to new converts, men and women who grew up in Ephesus, which was an exceeding wicked city. And they're coming out of that old lifestyle, and he tells them to leave that old life in their rearview mirror, to take off the dirty garments of sin, and to put on righteousness. And then he says this in Ephesians 4, 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather be, he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Here is God's economic strategy. The journalists, the reporters are working feverishly trying to corner those running for president right now as to the specifics of their economic strategy. Here is God's economic strategy in an economy of words. He says, work hard to provide for yourself and your family and to help those who are 
less fortunate. I would vote for someone who had that strategy. Now certainly, we must admit there are times in economic downturn and circumstances that, that finds a person without a paying job, but this does not mean that we're permitted to be idle. Sometimes when we don't have a paying job, it gives us more time to, to serve others. This is true in retirement. Many men in our church, women in our church, who serve so diligently and faithfully. It reminds me of a man, I've told our people this story before. I've only pastored one other church. It was in rural Mississippi. Congregation of about 40 souls. And the patriarch of that church was a man by the name of Johnny P. P-E-E. And Mr. P was a pipeliner all of his life. And about 70 years old, he retired from pipeline. He could no longer do the physical labor. He moved back home. But every day, as I would go back and forth to the office, I would see his pickup at someone's house. Usually he's out in the yard, mowing a widow's yard, trimming the shrubs, washing the car, doing something. Finally, one day after church, I said, Mr. Johnny, you worked hard all of your life. Why don't you rest? Why are you always working so hard? He said, Keith, I'll tell you why. He said, on the day I retired, my first day of retirement, I woke up early in the morning, as is my habit. I was lying in bed wondering what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I prayed this prayer. He said, Lord, if you'll put someone in my life that I can help, I'll do my best to help them today. And he said that was eight years ago, and the Lord has answered that prayer every day for eight years. There is a reward to work as we follow the Lord's command. That is my fourth and, and final point. The rewards of work, this is God's plan. Listen to the words of Jesus. Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, he will he not much more clothe you. You have little faith. Do not worry then, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Now, at first blush, it would seem that the words of Jesus there would contradict everything I've said so far. <laughs> he seems to be saying, do like the birds of the field, just uh, don't get a job, just sit on your hands and wait for the Lord to provide for your needs. But if, if you've ever observed the, the bird of the field, he has to hunt and peck, doesn't he? He has to get out and he has to, to find that food that the Lord has provided. And, and I think this is a great principle of Scripture. God has promised to meet all of our needs through Christ Jesus. But the means through which God often provides that provision is hard work and the ability to do it. Good health, a good creative mind, special talents or aptitudes that the Lord gives you are to be used to be fruitful and to be productive for God's glory, to provide for your own needs and those of your family members and for those who are unable to work themselves. That's God's plan. We have, unfortunately though, in our society, I believe, begun to diminish the value of work, and especially hard work. The Protestant worth ethic is, in many spheres of our 
culture looked down upon as a relic of the past. And sadly, that attitude that anything that is older than yesterday's newspapers of no value has begun to sneak into the church. I wrote an article last year in response to something I read, a sermon by a very well-known evangelical pastor in which he denigrated small churches. And he seemed to insinuate that if parents did not make sure their children went to a mega church, that these parents didn't love their children as much as those who, who do. He just kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I do what I do when I'm mad. I, I wrote a, a letter to the editor. And this is what I wrote. And I love to quote myself. You know this. Here I go. <laughs> Here's what I wrote. I said, sometimes when I rub my hands together, I notice that all my calluses are gone. When I was a teenager, I used to work part-time on a farm and as a construction laborer during the summers to help pay for school expenses. It's been a very long time since I hoed a row of cotton or drove a nail. These days I spend most of my time in a very well-appointed third-story office that the large suburban church that I pastor provides. And while I appreciate the comfort in which I labor, the result is that like the rest of my body, my hands have grown soft. My life, it seemed, is a, a reflection of our own denomination. Once we were primarily a rural agrarian group of people, but now we have gotten an education and we've moved to the suburbs. There's certainly nothing inherently wrong with attaining education or belonging to a large church or even having a comfortable office. But my fear is that while most of us no longer have calluses on our hands, we may be developing them on our souls." End quote. My point is this, our ancestors worked hard because they believed it was service as unto the Lord. And I believe that truth is biblical and biblical truth is eternal. That it does not have an expiration date. And so we will argue over this weekend that there is morality and there is virtue in all work that is done as service to the Lord. The Lord gives us rewards for our work. First of all, there's a sense of purpose and accomplishment. We know that we are made in the image of God. He is creative and He is productive and He expects His children to be. But when God created, He just said it. There's a difference. We're not God. We have to take the materials that He created and arrange them. It's the same way with music, isn't it, Shane? You guys are very creative in putting together arrangements and notes, but you did not create music. You did not create the notes. You put them together, and we all enjoy We all benefit from that. All of us have experienced this on, on some level. Even when I was working on the farm, that there was a sense of accomplishment and dignity when the last bale of cotton was taken to market, when that final shingle was pounded into place on the roof. That there are rewards to all work that is done to the Lord. Caring for children, I believe, is some of the most important work that is done in society. And I know the difficulty of that is there's never a time when the last shingle is nailed. There's always more to do. Every time you finish folding the clothes, there's, there's more to do. But, but stay with it. Keep the goal in mind of glorifying God. Even keeping up your yard well can be done unto the Lord. My dad will be 80 years old next month. 
And a couple years ago, they moved here to Texas. And they actually were living in a home that I own. And we moved around the corner so we could be close to them. And the second month my dad was here, he came and picked me up at the office. And he drove me to the neighborhood. And I could tell we were going to his house. And we turned the corner to his house. And he just stopped in front of the house and pointed. And in front of the house, there was a sign that said, Yard of the Month. (laughs) He says, as I recall, you lived in this house eight years and never had that sign in your yard. (laughs) There is dignity, there is joy in doing whatever work that you do as unto the Lord. Parking cars here on Sunday morning for, for senior adults leading a Sunday school class, rocking babies. Whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. I find it interesting. You know that my favorite passage of Scripture, and I'll close with this, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2. Paul was putting to rest an argument that was going on in the church at Corinth about who the best preacher was. Some say, I'm of Paul. Some say, I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of, of Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, look, if you want to regard us, regard us in this way, as servants of Jesus Christ and, and mysteries and, and stewards of the gospel. A white collar job and a blue collar job. The blue collar job was the servant, really means slave, a specific kind of slave. The slave in a Roman galley ship who was chained to the oars and he rowed. And when one killed over with exhaustion, they threw him in the ocean and placed someone else in his place. And Paul says, that's how I want you to regard me. I'm just working for the Lord till I die. And then he says, on the other hand, I'm also a white-collar worker. I'm a manager of the Lord's property. And what he had been entrusted with is the Word, divine revelation. And so he says, whatever I put in my hand to do, I'm going to do it as unto the Lord. And he did, whether it was making tents, or whether it was staying up all night, going from house to house in the city of Ephesus, teaching the gospel. The Bible has a lot to say about work, and I hope that... uh, as many of you as can, will be here tomorrow to hear more about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the, the worship we've enjoyed tonight and expressed to you. We thank you for your word that is so practical and relevant to our lives. and It's perfect. It's um, alive and sharper than a two-edged sword. And So, Father, as we submit to your word and to your spirit this weekend, we pray you would change us and make us more like Jesus through it. And we pray it in his name. Amen.